Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a multimedia education project based on the popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between, and in particular, the ongoing pandemonium. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on local Substack and Rumble to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I'm a musician, music producer, and writer slash editor coming at you live from the thankfully sunny Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I will be your host for today. But as always, I do not do it alone. Please allow me to introduce the author of Rounding the Earth and my co-host for this and most podcasts, Matthew Crawford. Good afternoon, Matthew. And you are on mute, sir. Uh, there we go. Thank you. Um, that, that, that's me futzing with uh, where I can watch the video in the chat as we go. Uh, I'm still not quite used to that. You know, uh, all, all these... Um, these whizzy techno gadgets that make a podcast happen, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've had a lot of uh, good conversations lately. Um, talked to uh, a lot of amazing people, but uh, today's uh, today's guest, Josh, is one of the handful of people that I've counted on the most. Whereas, you know how sometimes you sift through information and you, you want to read things yourself. You don't want to promote anything that that might not be tight. Um, well, Josh, Josh does tight work. Uh, he's been, you know, one of those people, uh, you know, every time I go through uh, what he's written, uh, I understand it when I read it, right? So it, it's one of those uh, excellent qualities about somebody's um, capacity to handle information and explain it well. Um, I completely so I'm really, I'm really agree. glad that he's here with us again. Uh, I am as well. And uh, I'm very excited to uh, let people know that um, we it's it's not just Josh. In fact, we've got a second guest today. We get who, a two for one. Yes. And um, I have uh, been more and more aware of this gentleman's work, um, especially the ongoing partnership of work uh, with Josh. Um, and uh, we're going to have the uh, the duo of gentlemen sort of explain in more detail what they're doing. Um, but I want to echo your excitement and let's use this opportunity to reintroduce our friend, Josh Gutzko. Oh, please tell me I got that right. And Pierre of Open Vate. How are you, gentlemen? Hi. Nice Good to evening, see you. everyone. Thanks for the lovely introduction. Indeed. Yes. Um, Pierre, Pierre. I, I have to say real quick, uh, I love that room that you're in, the architecture. That, that, that looks a, like a cozy home. It's an excellent retirement place from civilization, indeed. <laughs> well, it's yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Now, Pierre, can you confirm that I pronounced your handle correctly? Openvate? Openvate, yeah, but uh, you did. Okay. Vaccine so adverse event tracker. I just learned that today. <laughs> and now so have the rest of us. So um, let's do this. Let's, Josh, do you want to uh, briefly reintroduce yourself to the audience who may not, uh, some of whom may be watching uh, you or Rounding the Earth for the first time, and then we'll have Pierre introduce himself to the audience as well. Okay, sure. Um, my name is Josh Getzko. Let's Ow. go, Getzko. So close, so close. Next time, next time. And we'll do it in the in the green room beforehand. Okay, next time. Uh, 
Uh, my name is John. I'm a um, I'm a professor in sociology and criminology at the Hebrew University. I grew up in the U.S. Um, prior to the COVID uh, fiasco, I uh, wasn't doing anything related to this sort of thing. Although I do have a I did do a postdoc at Harvard in uh, health policy, and um, uh, you know at some point I started turning my attention to um, issues uh, related to um, the problems with the vaccines and that sort of thing. And then when the um, clinical trial data started coming out from Pfizer, I, I realized that I had the ability to, to transform the files from one format to another that people could use. So I was doing that. And then I kind of slowly, slowly, I was, I was busy with other things. I didn't want to get into it, but then slowly, slowly, I realized I'm one of the few people I know that has kind of the ability to work with this type of data. So I started working on it. I was working on it kind of full time um, from like May for about six months. And then I, I, I got caught up with other things. And then recently, you know, a few months ago, um, I connected with Pierre. Um, I had kind of seen him prior to that, but I don't know what happened. We got connected and then we started a collaboration and it's just been great because he's uh, just extremely gifted. He, I, you know, and, and um, extremely creative and, and extremely knowledgeable about this data. It's actually been a delight to, to, to meet minds with somebody who is as sort of into the data and understands the nuances of it. Uh, you know, we can really, talk about those things. So so that's where we're at and we've been kind of uh, collaborating for a couple of months. I have to I have to say that I haven't had time to do much of a lot of the analysis that we're going to be presenting. So Pierre has has really uh, been the backbone of this and the, doing a lot of the the heavy lifting on the data analysis. Um, and and there's a good advantage to that because uh, Pierre uses Perl and all of his code, is open source. He puts it out so anybody uh, can go and you know download the data and do you know uh, work, uh, rerun his code and get the same results and see what he's doing. It's very very transparent. Whereas the software that I have been using is proprietary. It costs money, um, and it's so it's it's kind of hard to to share my work. I'll stop there and let Pierre say more about himself. Yes, and Pierre, I just want to say I've been having a fantastic time following your updates on your Substack, and I highly recommend everybody um, go and follow uh, Pierre. And of course, Josh's Substack is included in the description. We'll make sure to pull up um, any relevant articles as we go as well. Um, so long story short, everyone should go subscribe to both if you have not yet. So Pierre, do you want to introduce yourself to us? Yes, I will briefly. Uh, thanks all for, to, to all for your kind words. And uh, my own background is a bit uh, atypical. I started uh, by studying law. I uh, mainly perfected my uh, IT skills uh, during that time. And uh, I started in uh, forensic uh, and uh, working with uh, a big intelligence economic firm in uh, in Paris and uh, learned a lot on big data analytics uh, at this time, then uh, moved to uh, professional gambling. And uh, I was mainly enjoying uh, an interesting life when the COVID fiasco struck. 
to which uh, my life took an uh, unexpected turn and I uh, took some step back as I wasn't able to uh, appreciate the situation accurately. I was detecting a lot of propaganda, but had uh, no access to, to accurate information. So I went in uh, to, to work as an anonymous uh, data, uh, let's say, analyst and uh, put my skills to use where I could uh, find, uh, let's say, uh, work worth doing. And I first started with adverse effects where uh, at this time a lot of fake numbers were propagated in Europe to decredibilize the proposition movement. And uh, from that moved, uh, thanks to my friend uh, Jeff Payne, to, to the Pfizer trial and uh, was doing a lot of uh, attempts to reproduce the efficacy analysis from the fragments of data we had at that time when I met Josh and uh, shared the delight to, to meet someone who, who shared my perfectionism, if not uh, <laughs> pushed it higher. So the, uh, where does your data come from? Uh, is it, is it uh, pan-European or are you focusing on French data? Uh, on adverse effects, I worked on American and European data, drug vigilance and virus and a lot of uh, countries, uh, countries' scales. And uh, on uh, the Pfizer trial, it's mostly uh, PHMPT, which is the data origin. Yeah, the, the Pfizer data dumps that everyone's familiar with, but don't know how to read. <laughs> um, well, okay, very organizing cool. is, 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 you know, half the, the battle, right? Well, and, and I'll say I was surprised to see there are still dumps coming. You know, they, yeah. they've sort of exited the news cycle, but they came up last night in a meeting I was in. And I went to check. And indeed, uh, as of earlier this month, um, they're still dropping stuff. What it, yep. What is being disclosed at this point? Uh, and is it relevant to the research you guys are doing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the stuff that was um, dumped this month was not really... Uh, we've been working a lot on the sort of subject level data, you know, um, and then they have kind of reports that so Pfizer basically gave the FDA the data and a bunch of reports about the data. And so uh, we've been mainly trying to use the, the data itself, but the, this month, the, what was released were a bunch of different reports. Um, and then uh, one of the things that I was going to get to later, but I can bring it up now that uh, Pierre had recently worked out was that um, the, the, so, you know, it, it, in mid-December, they started giving people that were in the placebo group a real, real doses of the vaccine. Mid-December 2020. Mid-December 2020. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that clarification. So um it looks if you if you look at the number of adverse events that they reported, um, given the time frame that they had, it's it's a far higher rate of adverse events than the than the original treatment group. Um, Interesting. And he had found that out, and then and then in this in this these PDFs that were released, um, they they there was a memo from them that's that basically says that and one of the weird things about it is they say as expected they they were expecting that and and so we're trying to figure out why in the heck 
<laughs> were they expecting that? We don't know. One, uh, one hypothesis is that they gave some priority to older people in the, um, in giving them the, the real vaccine. And, and so they may have been expecting a higher, you know, a higher rate of reporting of adverse events because these people are older and more frail and sicker. Because remember, adverse event doesn't necessarily mean it's caused by the vaccine. It's just like, sure. well, these people are more prone to morbidity in general, and therefore we'd expect a higher rate. Well, we don't know. I mean, that's one. Were the one, participants one not randomized? Do we have they stated their method for sifting cohorts? Of in in terms of the well, you know, like in a randomized control trial, you would have some sort of randomization method, right, to determine right. each person to to push them into a you know, cohort. Um, well, you know, so you, you make it sound like one, one hypothesis is that the cohorts were not of similar health status, which would already indict the, the trials. No. Okay. No. What I mean is that when they, and I'll show you this, I have a, I have a graph that shows this and we should dive into this because I've, we've got a lot of ground to cover, but yeah, basically when they went to give the placebo group, people in the placebo group, when they get, went to give them the real dose, they prioritized elderly people of the, you know, in that, the, the crossover group, but, the, but otherwise they're balanced. I mean, the, the placebo group and the treatment group were well balanced. Okay. okay. Uh, just throwing out one, one quick hypothesis is that shedding does matter. And that if, if they expected shedding to have affected the, uh, the placebo group, um, then shedding may have primed them for a more harsh reaction later on. Okay, but why they, I mean, they, I don't know. Okay, maybe, but I, it doesn't it seem like the sort of thing that they would sort of admit, they would, you know, say the quiet part out loud and say, as expected. Um, yeah, you know, it's still weird no matter how you weird. slice it. And I'll yeah. tell you something, okay? There's another, there, there's something that's recently come to light is that the the vaccine trial was the the doses that were given to almost everybody in the trial were uh, manufactured with a particular process they call it process one which was for these small batches and they found they couldn't really scale it up so they created a new manufacturing process they call it process two which they tested on 250 people in this in the in the entire trial but by the time the, the placebo crossovers were ready to go, they already had the, that process two doses. That's what they were sending out. That's what everybody in the world got. And I believe um, that that was also what the what the crossover placebo group got. And, and if you look, we have documents from the EMA and other things. There's a, a much lower purity uh, of the process two uh, batches. And so that may be why they were getting a higher rate of adverse events um we don't know okay well because we've got a lot of ground to cover as you say do you want to uh, dive into this presentation we've got here comernati or comernati right. um this is our sort of investigation and uh here's a brief little oh you know what i gotta go to this this uh okay so the overview is I'm going to we're going to look at how long the trial actually lasted. This is something that people talk about, but we can look at with hard numbers. We want to um, we're going to talk about this some miss, this issue of missing subject or missing subject IDs that we found. 
We're going to look at the issue of trial blinding and unbalanced protocol deviations. Uh, then we're going to look at imbalances. When I say imbalances, it means that the placebo group and the treatment group were not, they, they should be being treated and doing everything the same, but they're not. There's some imbalance between them. We're going to look at imbalances in, in uh, testing rates, PCR testing rates. Um, and then we're going to look at sort of this distinction between PCR positives and COVID cases. So how long did the trial last? Oh, so background here, you guys, we've already done this. So this is sort of irrelevant, but this is where we're getting our data. This was the, the uh, documents that were released via a Freedom of Information Act request by the, through this act, the legal action of the Public Health and Medical Professionals for Transparency. There's a lot of documents out there. Um, and there's a great little app um, at, the, at the URL there on the bottom right that was developed by some very talented people um, that you can go through and you can like do word searches through all of the PDF files and things like that. They've got a lot of other nice things at that website. Okay, so um, basically beginning on December 14th, um, three days after the EUA was granted, they began um, unblinding the trial per, per, uh, participants, the trial subjects. Okay, and you can kind of get a sense of the rate at which this happened. Now, it's important to mention that the data that we have goes until March 13th. That's the cutoff, okay? And the, the application for the full approval of Comirnaty um, is based on data that goes through March 13th. And that's why that's the data cutoff. That's what they submitted to the FDA for this approval. Um, so you can see that there's, uh, they're unblinding the trial subjects, placebo and treatment groups fairly evenly throughout that period from December 14th to March 8th or March 13th. Um, and then you can look, you can say, okay, well, from the time that people were um, received their first dose until they were unblinded. So once you're unblinded, right, this kind of like ends the trial for you anyway, because uh, knowing what type of, you know, if you got the placebo or the treatment, um, it, it affects the way you can, it can affect the way you behave. Right. And that, that's the whole reason that we try to do double blinding is because we don't want to affect the way that people will, will act or behave or create some kind of, you know, placebo effect or whatever. So basically, um, you get 137 days on average. So the average number of days that anybody was in the trial from unblinding to, from their first dose to unblinding was 137 days. So a little over four months, four and a half months. But, um, uh, and then that goes, you know, that tracks them until the day they were actually unblinded. But if you look at how the unblinding went by the eight by age group, what you can see is that um, they weren't unblinding by age group equally. At the very beginning, there's a bit of a preference for 16 to 55s, but then they started uh, unblinding um, the older age group at a higher rate, okay? And so basically what happens, what this essentially means is that the trial really ended on December 14th. 
because once you create an imbalance um, in the participants who are in your um, study, in this case, they're creating an age imbalance. Okay, they're 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 saying, okay, we're gonna go, we're gonna go and give these people the, you know, we're gonna unblind this group of people, this subgroup of people. If they had started unblinding randomly, okay, so then we could say that um, the trial really goes until people are on, you know, each individual is unblinded. So if you if you look at when people started, they got the first dose until December fourteenth, the average number of days drops from one hundred thirty seven to ninety seven. So it's you can basically say that the 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 trial lasted basically three months, okay, about nine, a little, just a little over three months, um, and then and then that's it, right? And then they the the treatment arms and the ages get unbalanced and uh, and and it's over. They they also unblinded right at a time when you would introduce a new form of bias called um, risk-adjusted person days, right? Um, you know, when you when you go into that period of high uh, infectivity, and, and we saw this in one of the Israeli trials, um, I, I, I can't recall uh, which one, maybe the BARDA trial, um, in, in, in one of the two retrospectives, uh, they didn't adjust for the fact that the that there was a significantly larger number of people unvaccinated during the peak of COVID season, right. and so you have much more risk per day in the unvaccinated group, and that has to be adjusted for. And it looks like you know when when they you know open up that un, that unblinding process, I mean that's the beginning of COVID season. Right. Right. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of room there for for different types of bias to sneak in. Um, so now I'm going to get into the this was that was something that I had worked on, but now I'm going to get into some of the stuff that Pierre and I have been working on together. And this is a synopsis of some of the major um, posts on his uh, blog that we're gonna I'm going to kind of be distilling down into sort of the key the key points here. Um, so the one of the things that has puzzled us and been very troubling is a, what I call the curious case of missing subject IDs, okay? So basically when a subject is, um, oh, okay, <clears throat> they have um, a screening process for the trial. Um, the company that was, hired to basically organize the trial is called ICON. And when people wanted to sign up for the trial, they would first contact ICON and they would have a screening, um, a pre-screening done through ICON. And then if they, they, if they pass that pre-screening, then they would go into the actual, um, the actual site for another screening. Okay. And when they, when they went into that site, Essentially, they signed the, um, once they signed the informed consent, which was at the very beginning, or supposed to be the very beginning, they would be assigned a subject ID number, okay? And if they didn't pass the screening, um, that, that second stage of screening, if they didn't pass it, they would still have a subject ID. They were still in the data. They were just it was just a screen failure, okay? They were not randomized to placebo 
or treatment group, they're considered screen failure, okay? And so the data that they've released includes all of this group of people, okay? Those who were randomized, placebo treatment, and those who were screened but failed the screening, okay? And when a number, when a, when a, when a number, a subject ID number is assigned to somebody, right, um, it, it's done consecutively. So at a given trial site, they start with the number 1001, and then the next person that comes in is 1002, and 1003, and 1004. The only way you wouldn't get assigned a subject ID number is if you didn't sign the informed consent. So, you know, they're basically assigning numbers the, essentially the moment you walk in the door. Okay. Now, they're sh so, so they're doing it consecutively. But if you look in the data, you see that there are a lot of numbers that are skipped, a lot of subject ID numbers that are skipped. So, you know, you see for a given site, you'll see 1001, 1002, 1003, and then suddenly you see 1005, 1006, and you're like, wait, what happened to 1004? Okay. So. And generally this form of indexing, uh, it's meant not to have gaps in the end for the most part, right? Exactly. Every now and then you might find a reason to to have, you know, deleted a record, do this or that. But yes. if, your, if your procedures are good, you've created a process from beginning to end such that you do not have gaps and that if there's any data exclusion, you know why the record is still there. You know why the data is being excluded. You've tracked everything. Exactly. Exactly. Now we do have, we, we, we have from Brooke Jackson uh, email or some kind of screenshot of a form that allowed the trial site to request the deletion of a subject ID. So we know that this could happen, but, um, but you're, you're correct that it's not something that should happen very often. And there, there's, so, so we can accept that it may have may have occurred occasionally, but we we have a, a, a several anomalies that make us uh, suspicious that this wasn't just computer or user error in every case. One of those anomalies is that we see that in many cases there were several consecutive ID numbers that are skipped. So you have two numbers uh, skipped, three numbers, all the way up to nine consecutive numbers. That are that are skipped and so it's hard to conceive of how that could have happened by computer error or subject error or um, human error okay so that's one of the things about it right um, the other thing is that we see that you know we would also expect it to be kind of like um randomly distributed across the sites right that people would be making mistakes kind of randomly but we don't see that we see them concentrated in a handful of sites and especially see it heavily concentrated at the Argentina site in Buenos Aires, right, where they have, you know, 12% of the trial subjects, but 37% of the skipped ID numbers. Now, what is the concern here? What is the, what is the suspicion? The suspicion is that at some point they went back and deleted subjects whose results or something was inconvenient was something that they wanted to try to hide maybe they died maybe they had a serious adverse event we we, we don't know and again we're it's a, it's a suspicion we we haven't been able to um to verify uh you know whether this could happen um by some fluke of the software um, we've contacted I mean, the FDA, we've contacted the I ICON, 
And so far, we haven't uh, received uh, an answer. If I could make two numerical observations there. Okay, this looks like, um, correct me if my math's wrong, 301 missing subject IDs? Yes, 301 okay. missing subject which is Which is in the ballpark of the entire effect size in terms of the total number of people between the, the two the two arms yes. who got COVID between the arms. So that, that's one point that I want I want to make. The second one is 44,000 participants, and there was a serious adverse event ratio of 0.7%, if I recall correctly, and 0.7% of 44,000 is 308, which is suspiciously close to 301. Just throwing those numbers out there. Okay. Great. Well, here's some more suspicion to add to the file. Okay, so we're looking at Argentina now. Um, there's been a lot made of the of the Argentina site, um, but one of the things is that, okay, um, so the 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 largest number, 111 of these 301 missed trial subjects were from the Argentina site, and on this day when they had nine consecutive missing um id numbers they had an additional eight so they had 17 on one given day this is august 21st 2020 they had 17 missing subject id numbers okay. among them missing because they, they should be there they went missing we don't know why okay um now here's something that's uh, an interest now remember we don't know when they were deleted from the data, we see that we see a snapshot of the data that was created on August. I'm sorry, on March 13th, 2021. These people could have been deleted on the first day, you know, August 21st, or any time in between. We don't know. All we see is this one snapshot. Now, guess who was recruited to the trial on August 21st? It, Augusto Rue. Okay, now uh, for people who aren't familiar with Augusto Rue's story, Augusto Rue is an Argentinian lawyer who was volunteered for the trial and became um, very ill uh, just after his second dose and ended up in the hospital. When he went to the hospital, they took a PCR test. It was negative. He basically had pericarditis. When he reported it to the trial, and the, and the doctors at the hospital said it was related to the uh, to to the vaccine, and they had been the nurses there said they've been seeing hundreds of of people coming in from the trial with with adverse events. Um, you remember, there were like you know five, over five thousand subjects from Argentina in a very short uh, space of time, uh, four thousand in that space of time. That were that were being uh, vaccinated. So okay, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm getting off. I'm getting off track. So he had pericarditis. He calls the trial site to tell them what he has, and they they basically write it down as he has pneumonia. Okay. Um, and then a, a few weeks later, they are the trial site in Argentina is contacted by this trial sponsor, BioNTech. Um, asking them to change his adverse event from pneumonia to suspected COVID-19. Um, and even though he had a PCR test that came out negative, they put it down as suspected COVID-19. Now, here's an interesting loophole in the, the protocol, is that they were not supposed to count cases of suspected COVID-19 
as an adverse event. So if your adverse event was designated as a potential COVID-19 case, they didn't have to count it as an adverse event. Now, in Augusto Ruiz's case, they did, it is in the count of um, adverse events, but we don't know if other cases of suspected COVID-19 um, show a similar, you know, have, if some of them were just a way to kind of cover up adverse events. And by the way, Pierre has uh, tried every which uh, possible way to recreate the numbers of suspected COVID-19 cases. You remember Peter Doshi wrote about this, showing that if you look at suspected COVID-19 cases, the efficacy is like 19% or something like that. He's done a heroic job of trying to um, replicate those numbers. He's come close, but not quite. So we still don't know how those numbers were exactly calculated. Now, here's another thing, okay? Another weird thing about missing subjects or related to the missing subjects problem. There is a file. So far, we've only gotten the version that was submitted to the EUA, but I believe a similar version will be coming through the FDA pretty soon. This is a list of investigators and number of sites. Now, the total number of subjects screened they have there, this is, by the way, includes the adolescent trial, 48,092 in the subject level data, the official data set for analyzing the efficacy that just came in March, by the way, they have 48,091. So there's, they're, they're off by one. Okay. But if you look on the lower right-hand side, it says subject screened per site um, and subjects randomized or entered per site. Right. So you see, now this is the, this is the, this is the page showing the Argentina site. Okay, 5,896 screen, 5,615 randomized. Now in their data, in the subject level data that we have, we know who was a screen failure and who was randomized, right? So we know for each site, we know the total number of people they screened, how many were randomized, right? How many weren't? The numbers don't line up, okay? They line up for some of the sites, but for many of the sites, um, there are basically if you if you do the go by the numbers in this document there are far more people who were screened but not randomized according to this than in the the date the actual data set that we have so we this is an, a, another huge anomaly between you know the number of you know the just basic numbers of the people that should be in the study just don't match up By the way, feel free to stop me if you guys have any questions or something you want to add. Maybe, maybe just a very brief thought. Um, one of my one of my worries with the trials uh, is that uh, no one ever tested to see. You know, we have a proxy test for disease, which is this PCR test, and the PCR test that was used. It's not even in use anymore. But uh, one of the things that did not take place that ordinarily would have taken place during a longer trial procedure is a test to make sure that vaccination did not confound right. that proxy okay. test. Okay, right, right. Okay, wait, there's going to be a perfect place later on to get into that discussion. Okay, okay. I, but I do want to finish this sentence real quick. Um, it, it, it is possible that that confounding depends on some factor that they could screen for. Yes, 
Yes, well, and that assumes that they were even, that they even would need to screen, right? The, the, <laughs> they'd have to get around the blind in some circuitous fashion, right? That, that's what I understand you to be meaning. Well, I, I just mean, uh, you know, maybe you can identify a portion of the population for whom the vaccine does or does not confound the PCR test. Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, okay. And sculpt yeah. the results that way. Right. Yeah. Um, one thing that, I mean, so one of the things I, I always like to point out here with this trial is that it's it's not a double blind trial. It was never billed as or presented as a double blind trial. Okay. It was called what they call a observer blinded study. And if you go through the protocols and the different documents, you see kind of like this division of labor between who was supposed to be blinded and who was supposed to be blind, unblinded at the site level and at the study level. So you have things like, okay, you're going to have a blinded study coordinator, but the study manager is going to be unblinded. Like what is the division of labor there? Right. And we know from, you know, from Brooke Jackson at her, the sites she worked at, there was ju just no blinding going on whatsoever. Right. I mean, they, terrible protocols. We don't have any reason to suspect that the other sites were any better, right? But, and also there's just this, who, you know, how can you have a, a handful of people working at a site side by side and some of them are blinded, some of them are unblinded. Now, one of the, <coughs> excuse me, one of the major justifications for this at the site level was that the vaccine requires a very special preparation, right? It's it, it, both storage and preparation. So there was somebody there and that presumably anybody doing the injections at least would be able to tell the difference between the study you know uh, the uh, investigational uh, product um, versus the placebo okay um, I don't know that that justifies the level of unblinding that went on at the site level but that is their justification for that okay and there is some anecdotal evidence that you know, the subjects knew what they were getting, right? It's not that, it's not rocket science, okay? Now, at the study level, there was also a lot of unblinding. And one of the justifications for that was that they needed to do statistical analysis while the trial was ongoing, okay? Um, because they were trying to do this at the speed of science. Hmm. Um, and Another um, interesting justification, if you look at the, on the right-hand side, study level, the medical monitor for adverse events. So they had an unblinded person that was monitoring the adverse events. Justification for that was they wanted to look for um, ADE, right? Antibody-dependent enhancement where the vaccine would make the disease worse. So they were kind of on the lookout for this. They were worried about this. And I guess they thought if they started to see it, they would stop the study or something like that. But what this also does is it gives them free reign to go through the adverse events, call up the, the site and say, hey, can you reclassify that adverse event as suspected COVID-19? That sounds like something they did in Argentina. And it was something they did in Argentina. And we also know from Brooke Jackson that they, they asked the, the, one, the site that she worked at to do the same thing. So this was something that was definitely going on. And again, we don't know how many sort of adverse events were swept under the rug um, with this with this type of methodology, but it's Josh, very, I, it's very suspicious. 
Josh, just to interject, you just alluded to the notion that the recipients, the participants in the study, people having their arm injected with something, uh, may have known uh, as a matter of fact, kind of across the board, whether they were getting the shot or the placebo. Can you just elaborate? Is that is that what you're saying? And if so, that, that has some interesting implications. Right. Well, definitely the person administering it knew. Um, to what extent the people, so I've talked with Augusto Ru, he said a lot of people knew that they didn't get the, you know, felt that they got the placebo or they didn't get the placebo. And we're going to see a little bit of evidence of that too. Now I'm not saying everybody, every last person in the study knew that, but I, I think there's good reason to think that, that many people uh, were aware of it. And, and part of why I pointed out is there was a video that um, it may have been JJ Cooey. Um, was going over a number of weeks or months ago where um, there was somebody right at the beginning, maybe it was December 2020, a high profile um, academic uh, who was discussing his, he was promoting, you know, get out the shot campaign. And um, he said that he was a part of one of the trials and he was not aware at that point if he had gotten the placebo or the actual mm. product. And mm -hmm. so this is why I bring this up is as we're starting to look back in other contexts and try to examine what people knew when and, you know, who had an, uh, who had authority that was abused or not, so on and so forth. It is interesting to add a layer of, mm. you know, is yeah. was there a layer of, of, you know, maybe that wasn't a totally truthful statement when he said he <laughs> one way or the other. Yeah, uh, just, that's just one point. example. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's a different, there's a, also, a, there could be shadings of knowing and thinking, right? I, well, I, I think, I don't think they gave me the real thing. I think they gave me the placebo. Because I feel um, completely fine. So it can't have been the real thing. <laughs> but you, now you, let's you look at some evidence. What? Causes people to think through that is bad. Right. And also, you know, again, the, 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 the people at, you know, conducting the study, many of them were aware of, who was getting the placebo and who wasn't, which, which, you know, it, it just goes against the best, uh, best practices that, that we have. I, I, it's hard to imagine that they couldn't have done a better job. First of all, the person preparing the dose didn't have to be the person administering it. So the person administering it, you know, didn't necessarily have to know they, they may have been able to do a better job of making the placebo more like the product. I don't know, but let's look at some evidence suggesting that the blinding, this is what I call the Swiss cheese method of blinding. Okay, it's not double blind. It's not observer blind. It's it's Swiss cheese. And let's look. So one of the ways we can look at that is we can look at imbalances across the treat the treatment and placebo groups in the in certain protocol deviations, right? So whenever you deviate from protocol, it's supposed to be uh, a record is supposed to be made of it. And um, and so we see some you know odd. So the, the, here's a handful of the protocol deviations where where there's an imbalance across the arms now. Um, each of these individually is statistically significant. I haven't done a test to sort of look at, um, I forget what they call it, like sort of repeated, repeated test. What, what, do you, remember, you know what that's called, uh, Matthew? When you, you do a bunch of significance tests, you have to take into the fact that you've, you've done a bunch and some of them didn't come out significant. Right, um, right. Um, we could, uh, we could, you know, flip coins all day and eventually we'll get a statistically significant right. adverse tail result. Right. Um, so typically we correct by, um, by acting as if uh, they were all part of the same pool. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, so I have to. I, we have to go through and, and and nail this down a little bit better. But 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 ju just take this at face value for the moment. So we see, for for example, an imbalance in the potential COVID illness visit not done when required. Meaning, um, what does this mean? It means that when people felt uh, when people had a symptom, when they were feeling ill, they were supposed to call in to the site and and either do a visit or have some kind of phone call with the, uh, with the doctor with, uh, about it. Okay. Um, and so what we're seeing here is that the people in the treatment group were less likely to do a visit when they were supposed to do a visit. And we don't know why that is. It may be that they knew that they had gotten the vaccine. And so they're like, well, I don't have COVID cause I got the vaccine. I don't need to go in for a visit. That might be, I don't know. Right. We don't know. Um, we have, now here's something, the next one is something that work, actually works kind of in the favor of the placebo group, which is that they were, um, they were collecting swabs from, um, I'm sorry, no, this works, doesn't work in favor of, their nasal swab collected as, at a visit where it's not required. So they, they, were, they were looking for, they were looking for infection from COVID at a higher rate of the, in the placebo group than in the treatment group when it wasn't required. Okay. Um, and then, um, okay. Then the next one is where it favors the placebo group. They're, they're, um, they're not collecting um, swabs at a higher rate in, in the placebo where it is required, um, et cetera, et cetera. Now here's, if you go down, look at this one, this is receipt of flu vac. No, I'm sorry. Receipt of other, of other coronavirus vaccine. You can see that the, <laughs> there were a lot more people in the placebo group who are out there trying to get another coronavirus vaccine. Now, th this was like in December, January, when the when it had come sure. out, probably, or something like that. Or maybe there was another trial going on for another vaccine in the area. And they're like, well, I didn't get lucky with that one, so I'm going to go out and, and try another. But by that huge imbalance, you can see that there were a lot of people in the placebo group who felt strongly enough that they had gotten the placebo. They went out and got another vaccine. And then at the very bottom, you see urine pregnancy tests not performed so it was more likely to happen in the placebo group, right? Well, why would you not do a, a urine pregnancy test? Ah, she got the placebo. Why do we need to do a pregnancy test, right? You know, we, again, we don't know exactly what's behind these um, imbalances, um, but it's, it's an indication that the blinding was far from watertight, okay? Now, of course, one of the biggest imbalances is one that um, Matthew is one of the first, uh, if not the first, to point out. Now, this is from a table of the F where they were looking at the um, efficacy. They were doing efficacy, efficacy calculations, and they're taking people out of the efficacy calculation. They're excluding. Okay, this, this, these, these were people who were excluded from the efficacy uh, calculations. It doesn't mean they were excluded from the trial. They weren't excluded from the trial. They just weren't included in this calculation. Okay. And you see this huge imbalance where you have that left column of numbers is the treatment group. The middle column is the placebo group. And you see this big imbalance where you have a lot more people excluded. Okay. <clears throat> now this looks bad, but I got to tell you, I don't think there's anything to it. Okay. And I'll tell you why. First of all, we now we know who got a PCR test 
um, who, who complained of symptoms, who got PCR tested, and what the PCR test results were. And there's no imbalance here between, uh, if we look at this group of people who were um, excluded on these impor other important protocol deviations, which we now know who those were, um, there's no imbalance in the number of people who uh, got had P positive PCR test results. One interesting thing about all of these people, both in the placebo and treatment group, is they all at some point uh, reported um, symptoms, like a COVID, uh, COVID symptom. All, um, all these people, this 371 or 372 number, you're saying that all those people reported COVID symptoms? One of the, one of the nine official COVID symptoms, yes. Okay, so I, I'm going to, I want to throw this one back into the mix because um, it, you say that, that it doesn't look like it, it might affect like the, the efficacy calculations, but if the vaccination confounds the PCR test and you're saying that all of these people showed symptoms, then I would throw that back into, yes, it absolutely does matter that I, like I, as a statistician could not sign off on an efficacy, efficacy calculation with, with that kind of lopsided exclusion. Right. Now, why, why were these, what is the source of the of what, what are these important protocol deviations? So um, we can we can kind of whittle down or look at the reasons that were given for the, the these other important protocol deviations, okay? And so when I have here like 105 versus four, that's 105 people in the treatment group versus, versus four in the placebo group. So there's a dosing or administration error, okay? By the way, 52 of those 105 come from um, the uh, Argentina site on October, I'm sorry, on August 23rd, 2020, 52 people um, at the Argentina site were given a higher dose of the vaccine than they were supposed to. I think it was 56 or 62 milligrams instead of 30, okay? Oops. And so they were told about this and um, they, they, so they were told about this and then they were given a choice if they wanted to continue or not continue. So um, now, okay, I didn't make this, I forgot to make this point earlier. So I'm going to come back to it now. That was August 23rd. Now remember August 21st, two days prior to that is when Augusto Rue um, received his first dose. And it's also the day when they, those 17, with those 17 missing subjects, okay? Now, those missing subjects got their do their first dose on the same day as Augusto, which means they were supposed to come back three weeks later and get their second dose on the same day that Augusto got his second dose. Now, what if Augusto had an adverse reaction, a severe adverse reaction, because there was something wrong with the dose that he got on that second day? That means that all of those other people that came back on the second day, or many of them could have also gotten something wrong with their dose, right? We saw it, we see here that there were 52 people on one day where they just totally screwed up their dosing. Maybe they did it or something else happened on that other day and they caused some severe adverse reactions in people to, to such an extent that they felt the need to erase those subjects from the trial. Okay, that's that's a suspicion 
we don't know if that's what happened, but it, it just it's just weird that there are so many people missing day where we know somebody had a very serious adverse reaction from from the vaccine. In, the, in the old days, in the old days, yeah. people did science with a notebook and that notebook never disappeared. That was right. Um, that was the gospel of that experiment. Right. And here, you know, we have a central, you know, Pierre has been saying we need to get, we need to find a way to do an audit of the actual database because all we're, all we see are extracts from the database that can be, there are many different ways to manipulate the extracts uh, from the database, which is basically all we have. Um, so, so, okay, so you see I, the IP, the, the investigational product was administered that was not deemed suitable for use by Almac. Almac was the company that was in charge of the logistics of you know, storage and 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 um, shipping of the vaccines. So if uh, you know if they had a shipment of vaccines and they saw that the temperature rose above a certain amount, then that uh, those doses were no longer deemed suitable. For example, that could be one reason why you get this. Um, we have incorrect vaccine allocation assigned to the subject. Um, and then the last one is this IP administered primer prior to Almac authorizing it for use. We don't know what that means. We don't know why a, 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 the vaccine wouldn't be, you know, what, at what point is Almac, you know, authorizing it? Why would they give it prior to that? We, we don't, don't really know what that means exactly. Um, Pierre thought maybe it was an indication that uh, about the uh, process two versus process one. We, we, we don't know. One other just sort of interesting thing about that protocol deviation is that it's actually not um, coded in their data as an important protocol deviation, right? Now, these people were taken out of the efficacy analysis um, on the basis that they had some quote-unquote other proto important protocol deviation, this was the only protocol deviation these people had. So they, they consider, apparently, everybody who had this protocol deviation was taken out of the efficacy. So, you know, it could just be a coding error where they, they forgot to code this as important. I'm not really sure. But when you take all of these together, you, you basically end up with data that's no longer in balance. Okay. Now you could say, well, you know, maybe there was some grand manipulation going on here where they were giving these people these protocol deviations to take them out and they were manipulating the results, you know, the efficacy results on that basis. I don't know. I don't think there's anything uh, to this in a sense. Like I, I, this is not the, this is not our smoking gun. Okay. This is not. Um, and that, that's my opinion. Hmm. Okay, so now we're going to get to another issue, which is related to the testing that they did. Okay, Josh, gonna, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry to I'm sorry to cut you off before you move on to the next thought. Um, point of clarification: You might have said this, but Almac that's it's a drug discovery company that was running one of the trial sites. It's equivalent to Ventavia Research Group, right? No, no. This this they were running the the logistics of 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 uh, shipping and storing the 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 doses the, the um, investigational product 
we're in the hierarchy of the large tree of organizations involved in the project. Would they be compared to, for example, Ventavia? They would be above Ventavia. They would be okay. like, you know, maybe contracted by Icon to run the logistics uh, of the of the you know storage and shipping of the vaccine. Ventavia is a node; they're the network for dis distribution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Exactly. That that is helpful. Thank you. That's my understanding. You know, I could be wrong. Um, okay, so now we're going to move on to the issue of testing. So the protocol says if you have um, okay. the protocol says if you have one of these nine symptoms um, and a positive PCR test within, say, four days of symptom onset or, or resolution, then you would be counted as a as a symptomatic COVID case. And that's what they studied. That was their primary efficacy endpoint. They were only looking at these symptomatic COVID cases. Now, the, the, the trial subjects were, were instructed to call in and report a wider range of symptoms, okay, because they also had these secondary list of COVID-19 related symptoms and stuff like that, okay. Um, but that's basically, this is, this is how the testing worked, right? So in what they should have done, really, if they wanted to, to, to do this very carefully, is they should have tested everybody at regular intervals, done a PCR, regardless of symptoms, right? They didn't do that. You had to call in and tell them you were having a symptom, and then they instruct they, they would instruct you either to come in and have a PCR test done, or people were also given um, swabs to do at home, okay? And all of the testing for the trial of whether or not you were PCR positive was done at one central laboratory, um, a Pfizer laboratory in New York. Okay. And this, here's an, a little globe, um, a picture posted by uh, Jickey leaks showing that sort of distance from our, our, how absurd it is to think that you would need to send a swab all the way from Argentina to New York city for this, um, rather than just have it tested at some low on some local machine. Right. But the fact that all of the testing was that was, you know, would allow for an efficacy analysis was being done at a central laboratory controlled by Pfizer uh, raises one's eyebrows that, you know, they, that they, <laughs> they had levers there that they could manipulate potentially to make the trial outcome come out uh, as they pleased. And for anybody listening, make no mistake, there are hundreds of PCR labs in Argentina. Right. Now, uh, now, if you had a central PCR, if you had one of these central tests done, um, the, the results back for weeks. So if you actually wanted to know if you had COVID, you would have to do a local test. In some of the trial sites, the trial site itself was offering to do a local test with a local machine, you know, that would be um, tested, uh, run through a local machine, and you would get a result very, very quickly. In some cases, you had to go to your doctor to do that, or you had to go to a lab. You couldn't rely on the trial site to do that. Um, so, so we have this distinction between the central tests controlled by Pfizer and the local tests. Okay. Now, wow. I'm not going to get, there's a lot of nuances here. And like, cause they, in the pr protocol, they had three different PCR testing assays 
prove, they said, if, if in order for a PCR result to count towards, uh, you know, to count as a COVID case, uh, it has to be one of these three assays. Okay, anything else won't do. And the um, the central assay they used one test as a CFIAD um, PCR test. Now many of the local tests weren't done on any of those three assays, but they're that doesn't mean that their test results are invalid. Okay, so here's our, our distinction, central and local. So here's where we start to see a lot of shenanigans, okay? So one of the things that we see, now, um, so one of the things that we see is that the treatment subjects were less likely to have local tests done. Um, that's throughout the entire trial. Well, we don't know why that is, but it's a strong indication of a lack of blinding, right? Um, well, first of all, it could be that the uh, the trial site operators discourage people who uh, treatment subjects from getting a local test done because they don't want to they don't want <laughs> a mismatch of results between the what the local test is saying and what the central test is saying. Maybe they're trying to hide it. It could be simply uh, the treatment subjects saying, "Well, I got the vaccine." I obviously don't have COVID, even though I have a symptom, but I'm not going to bother getting a local test because, hey, I, I'm vaccinated, right? I mean, it could be something like that. We don't know what the, what this variation is. What's interesting, though, is um, that when, when we look at the data cutoff for the um, emergency youth authorization, the data cutoff for that was November 14th, Okay. So they only use data up until November 14th. But if we look at the testing rates before and after that date, um, we see a big change. And we don't know what explains it. We see a big increase. So they're much, both placebo and um, uh, treatment group subjects are sort of more likely to be have a local test done uh, after the EUA cutoff. That might be simply that there was a greater availability of tests at the local level at that time. Um, we don't know. I don't think that's what it is because there was still plenty of tests to go around before that, but, but you never know. Now let's look at this, the central testing rates. If you look overall at the central testing rates, uh, there's no difference between the rate at which the treatment group and the placebo groups were, were tested. But if you look at this EUA cutoff, you see this is very interesting where the um, prior, uh, prior to the EUA data cutoff, the treatment group was less likely to get a central test. Okay, so I call in, I have a symptom, they're supposed to do a central test. Lo and behold, we see that they weren't doing that equally for the treatment group the placebo group. And of course, if no central test is done, then you're basically never going to get a positive PCR result. Now that difference is small, 84% versus 87%, but it is statistically significant. Okay. Um, moving forward. Um, it, okay. So it isn't just it isn't just the testing rate that, these, that this thing is going on. We can look at the results that they were getting from local tests that were done and compare those to the central tests that were done. 
Um, now, remember that there were also a lot of other PCR tests that were being done according to protocol. They were supposed to get a PCR test done um, on the first day when they got their first dose. They were also supposed to have a PCR test done, regardless of symptoms, on the when they came in for their second dose. And even a month later, when they came back, they were supposed to get uh, a, a blood test done uh, to test for their antibody levels that were often given a PCR test at that point. But if you if you compare... Uh -huh. yeah, Tested before or after they took the dose? Uh, I don't know. I don't mm. know. Um, but uh, so, okay. Um, basically what I'm, what I'm showing you here are, um, okay. These are positive. If we take all of the PCR test results, local tests and central tests, put them together. What we see is an imbalance uh, across the placebo group and the treatment group. This is a very busy table. So I'm just going to kind of give you a sense of, uh, just, just go down to the very bottom row. This is symptom driven tests. Okay. So these are the protocol per protocol tests, we can look at what percentage of um, positive people who had a positive PCR result, either central or local, that were counted as a COVID case for the efficacy analysis. So um, in the placebo group, 79% um, of people with a positive PCR test result, symptom-driven po positive PCR test result, were counted as cases compared to only 52% of the treatment group. Okay, so we, there's this huge imbalance across the across uh, placebo and treatment group, uh, right? Where why why is it that these um, people in the treatment group who have symptoms um, they have a positive PCR test result, but they're not being counted as a COVID case? What gives? And the answer to that is that essentially um, the people in the treatment group who had a positive local test were more likely to have either a negative central test or a missing central test compared to the placebo group. A missing central test? Or a missing central test, yes. Well, that's interesting. Which, 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 oh, which does we don't know what that means. It could mean that they did it and it and it went missing, or it could just mean that they never they never did it, right? We don't know what stage of the process it go, it was missing. It, it it could be that it was never done. I just want to point out for the audience um, that that alone, if if there's not a good reason for that bias, that would engineer thirty four percent efficacy. Already, so if like if these if these factors sort of add up, you know, um, amongst each other, that's basically a three to two ratio. Right, right, and and now I want to say something about these numbers quickly. These are numbers I calculated. Pierre has calculated the same thing. He didn't get exactly the same numbers here, and we haven't had a chance to kind of come together yet and and work out the. <laughs> you know, uh, an agreement on exactly what we're doing, but, but I, his findings were similar, right? So we know this was going on. <clears throat> These numbers might not be exact, but, um, but this is a, you know, this is a major thing. And, and this, I think 
comes back to your point, Matthew, about this idea of the test not, you know, not being sensitive. So it may, you know, why are, why is it that the, when the treatment group has a positive local test result, the central test is more likely to come back negative. Is that because of something related to the, the test not being, the, the central test not being sensitive to, uh, you know, to people with, uh, who are vaccinated or, or were they do you know, were they pulling some other lever, like, um, not doing, uh, the test as, as high a, uh, cycle count, right. As the placebo group. Right. Or were they, maybe they were just fabricating the result. I mean, we don't know why, one, why there one was. One way or another, I just want to point this out for people who have been following the story of like, how, how good are the PCR tests? Right. Um, even if, even if you want to call it a test, it, you know, um, it, it's a proxy test at best. But um, pe people like to say, oh, no, these things are they're, they're nearly 100 percent accurate. But here you've got substantial difference between a local test and a central test. Right. right? No. You know, if, if we can see that much variation in the differences, then these are not good tests for the disease. Right. But again, you're also assuming that these that the central tests were done <laughs> properly and the results were recorded properly, sure. which we can't we can't necessarily assume. One last thing I want to point out on the slide is that these differences here are statistically significant. OK, they're not just it, it's not like you don't get these results just by chance. OK, um, and then so that's kind of it. Let me just summarize what we what we looked at okay we have 301 quote unquote missing subject ids it's a mystery we still don't know why they're missing we we do see large variation across sites the missing ids there's uh, especially the ones where you have things running in um uh, you know um, sequence missing in sequence uh are concentrated at a few sites especially argentina and then we have this discrepancy in the screened and randomized subjects in the report versus the actual data. Um, we have treatment subjects being less likely to have local tests done. <clears throat> Again, large, very uh, unexpectedly large variation across sites. It's not another way to say large variation. I guess that's not right. The right term. It's, it doesn't seem to be randomly distributed across the sites. Let's put it that way. It seems to be focused on a few sites. Um, with a change after the EUA cutoff, we have the, the treatment arm less likely to have a central test before the EUA cutoff. They were less likely than the SIBO group to have a central test done. Um, we have symptomatic treatment subjects with positive local tests were more likely to have a negative or missing central test. That was the thing that I was just showing. And then the thing, you know, we go back to the very beginning before we started this, we have this issue of process one versus process two, right? They tested on process one and they gave everybody doses made from process two right, with a higher adverse event rate among uh, crossover placebos compared to the original treatment. group. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, you know, I kind of get this sense there's two um, 
two factions of people. There are people who are so tired of hearing about Pfizer and their corrupt nonsense. And we get it. The shots are best case scenario. Didn't do anything. Worst case scenario or contributing to declining population, whatever. Then you have the other side that finds this to be tremendously important to understand, as I put in the title, the nitty gritty of, you know, there are, for example, lawsuits going forward. Um, there in, in various jurisdictions around the world that require that, in fact, will rely on some tiny detail that you guys are working on fleshing out and and others like you. So I fall into the camp of I want to understand exactly what happened. I want to be able to explain it to everyone I know. And um, the only way to do that is to go into, again, the nitty gritty. So I, I, I want to start by saying thank you guys for doing this because I wouldn't even know most people would not know where to start. And this is something that does take credentials or long, uh, a well experienced period of having done stuff like this before. So I appreciate you very much. That's what I want to say first. Thank um, you. I'm curious. So you, you gave a summary of what you found so far. Um, and you kind of touched on what we don't know. What are the biggest things that we don't know yet that we clearly need to know? Well, that's a great question. <clears throat> Not even entirely sure. Well, one of the things is that we haven't been able to rep basically replicate anything that Pfizer has reported in any of their memos. And believe me, I've tried and Pierre has tried even harder than I have. One of the problems that we have is that we only get the snapshot of the data as it was on March 13th. So if we want to recreate anything that was submitted for the emergency youth authorization, for example, we, we don't have the data snapshot from November 14th. We can kind of try to revert, you know, go back and say, okay, we're going to stop the data. We're going to like not consider any data after November 14th. But even with that, we see things like people that um, I, I maybe Pierre can remind me, but, you know, you see things like people who weren't excluded, um, even though then they were later excluded, um, uh, even though the exclusion that they're the reason that they're exclusion excluded happened, you know, at the very beginning of the study. So why weren't they excluded by November 14th? We don't know, but they weren't. And so, you know. So you can, in Pierre has come very, very, very close to rep, replicating the numbers on a number of different things, but it's it just seems to be it's just like always off, and almost every time that that we're trying to recreate something, we end up with more questions that we've answered, and many of those questions are nitty gritty. I mean, if you guys think that we went into the nitty gritty uh, in this you know presentation, believe me, we didn't we didn't even get close to getting. I believe you. Really nitty gritty. Um, but so, so, uh, you know, so one thing is just like how, you know, Hey, let's recreate one thing that Pfizer reported to the FDA. You know, let's, let's try to do that. Um, now, uh, Pierre has been in touch with Christine Cotton, um, who has a lot of experience actually doing this and submitting, um, clinical trial data to, uh, preparing, analyzing, submitting clinical trial data two regulatory agencies. She works with the uh, statistical software that they use 
Pfizer has released the syntax files they used for that. So if anybody is in a position to, to recreate what they've done, maybe Christine is because she has the actual code that they used. But but Pierre's been in touch with her trying to recreate the code, you know, in a Perl friendly format and still, you know, they're still having trouble. And by the way, um, uh, there's a lot of work that Pierre and, and has been doing and with Christine or consulting with Christine um, that's on his uh, Substack that we didn't even have a chance to go into. Um, so what, what are, Pierre, maybe you have a thought on what are some of the big, big picture. <laughs> In terms things. of what do we need, I will answer very simply a forensic copy of the database server. Uh, that's the smallest thing we can have to, to reach confidence and clarity in this data. And uh, I'm not expecting that it will achieve confidence if we get our hand on it. Uh, briefly, we know more or less what the subtesting of the subjects has generated as bias thanks to the visit-free antibodies testing which were made and which are reflecting a much higher part of uh, infected uh, people in the BNT group than uh, what was accounted in the, in the study. JKDX uh, made an article about that a while ago on the, on the advice expectation. Uh, but um, back to the subject deletion, uh, the fact that we strongly suspect that subjects have disappeared at a given time of the study. The yeah. fact that we don't have uh, data with uh, accurate timestamp uh, allowing to reproduce the analysis per the ADRG, yeah. and the fact that they did themselves mistakes in the data that we have documented, for example, not excluding at EUA time uh, people who hadn't received those one, uh, introduce uh, a number of potential bias in reproducing the analysis, but I doubt that everyone has ever done it, um, including at the regulator side, which should yeah, have been I'm, done as far as I know. Yeah, I mean, what, uh, first of all, the complication, the, the 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 data is just so messy and it and 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 complicated. There's just no chance the people at the FDA did a real. Um, you know, uh, thorough job. For example, uh, there's a August um, statistical review memo from the FDA where they look at the adverse event rate of the placebo group that crossed over and got the got the jabs, and they show that that rate is lower than in the original um, the original group, which it contradicts the, the memo that, that Pfizer submitted to them. Actually, this might also be a memo. that I don't know, but they didn't control for for observation time or exposure time, they, the person years, right? So the people, you know, the, 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 the placebo group was only on their observation for a short period of time at the data cutoff compared to the original treatment group that was under observation for a much longer period of time. So you have to control for that. Now, if you don't control for that, then you don't see that it's a higher adverse event rate. But when you do, uh, you do see it. So in this, you know, the statistical review memo that the FDA is going through very, very carefully, whatever, you know, they completely missed this, this basic, you know, fact, this basic issue. But just to go back to what Pierre said, yes, this issue of the missing subjects, I think, is, is really crucial um, and, and just a huge mystery we emailed that we, <laughs> I emailed uh, Peter Marks about it. 
he he forwarded the email to uh, somebody under under him in the chain of command. She emailed me and said, "We'll look into it. It'll take some time." I emailed her back like a week later, saying, "Okay, great. Um, do you have any idea how long it'll take?" And I haven't heard back, and that was several weeks ago. How long I also, will it take for you to review the original trial report? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> like, or just to give us an idea of how this could happen, right? How could you have all of these missing subjects? That all they could, you know, and then I, I, I also submitted a inquiry to Icon, the company that that they whose software was used to run the trials, um, to see if they could explain the, this glitch. And I didn't hear, I didn't hear anything back from them at all. Um, so, you know, it would be great to, to get some clarity on that. I'd like to take a crack at summarizing all of this. Okay, great. And ultimately, um, and, and, you know, before the summary, I just want to point out something that, um, that several people that I've talked to who, you know, have worked in biotech or have worked in the pharmaceutical industry have told me, which is that Pfizer is not much of a drug development company anymore. It's almost a little bit weird for Pfizer to be controlling trials because more of their business model over the past uh, couple of decades has shifted toward being a supply chain management company and a regulatory interface corporation. And, uh, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong about that, but, but relative to the size and scale of their business, they don't do a lot of trials. Well, and when, when people have looked in, uh, those trials have been mm, you know, less than scientific looking. Right. Well, some there is uh, uh, somebody I think who goes by the pseudonym. Um, I want to say Richard Kogan. Um, he's always he's always uh, tweeting people that um, it's not Pfizer, it's BioNTech. It's not yeah. Pfizer, it's BioNTech. It's not Pfizer, it's BioNTech, and it's true. The study sponsor is BioNTech, um, and it so what you're saying it kind of makes sense that Pfizer would partner with a drug drug development or the drug developer would partner with Pfizer to be their regulatory interface and to help with the supply chain and the production and everything and, like and that. And that level of compartmentalization, I think, uh, encourages the compartmentalization of tasks that allow for the potential manipulation of science. But I'm going to summarize it like I'm going to summarize all this like this. If there is no notebook, did science take place? Right. If you can't reconstruct the process, if you can't follow the chain of data, if people can't answer your questions 2.4 years later, you know, if you, if you can point to a part of the process and ask a question and don't get a simple answer, then there is no universe in which that trial report should have been accepted as conclusive on December 10th, 12th, 2020, 11. Uh, we'll take the average. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know the, the the entire the the entire notion of this being good science is total absurdity. And thank you, thank both of you and the many other people, the Brooke Jacksons, uh, you know, the the people who've who've looked at this on every level, the Jakey Leaks, uh, the Mouse Army, uh, <laughs> uh, but but everybody who has done um, careful work to shine a light in so many corners that there there really just isn't a good argument. There is no trial notebook. Science has not yet taken place, at least so far as has been communicated to anyone in the public or any of us. Now, I'm curious. I had a, uh, 
I'm in I'm in multiple task force type groups trying to figure out you know public relations type stuff um, you know to try to get people just in the general public aware of some things. Uh, I'm in legal task groups trying to get the right information into the hands of the lawyers um, in various contexts up here in Canada and and further. And um, first of all, there's someone I want to connect you guys with because you may be able to help. But more generally, um, or or rather on the the bigger, more well-known case, you've you've alluded to uh, Brooke Jackson and um, her experience at the, the Ventavia uh, clinical trial site that has become a very well-known story. Now, of course, in recent weeks, her um, her Ketam case was uh, dismissed. Um and that doesn't mean it's the end of the road for that effort. It does it does complicate things a little bit. Uh, there's some nuance as to whether this was the better of two bad outcomes. Um, the the alternative being that the Biden administration steps in uh, and shuts it down themselves, which was on the table. Um, my question, I suppose, is uh, this all. I assume you guys have been working to some degree um, with Brooke and with with her counsel, with, with Warner Mendenhall, uh, Robert Barnes. Um, uh, are you able to talk about any of that at all or, or, or confirm or deny? You know what? I actually had a conversation with Warner. Uh, Pierre, I forgot to update you about this. I'm sorry. I had a conversation with him last week. I went through some of these key, some of the, uh, just very briefly kind of like, summarizing some of these um it's 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 too it, it seems to be maybe at least for him what he's looking for just too uh, deep in the weeds at this point uh he says i like i like sim i like simplicity like i you know you want uh these are you know each one of these things in and of itself is not enough of a smoking gun right and the it, it doesn't get to a smoking gun by the sum of its parts at least i think as a from a legal perspective no i don't know i don't know but that that seems to be his inclination um if we were ever able to make uh some kind of strong uh decisive claim about these missing subjects i think that would be the smoking gun is that there's no science notebook. Right. Uh, but you can't I, sue. You know, I don't think they can. They're not going to be able to make a legal claim on that basis, I think. But it, 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 which is interesting. I mean, it, it is. We should be able to make a legal claim on that basis. I mean, the fact of the matter is um, that that's totally irresponsible science. I mean, that's like, you know, uh, you know. Uh, if you have a restaurant and you don't have, uh, I, I don't know, someone come in and examine the kitchen, right? Right. There's no, there's no regulatory approval of, of, you know, we, we don't know that the kitchen has been cleaned ever. Right. Right. If, or if or here's one, you're taking a, you're, you're, you're making the, that determination based on pictures that the restaurant owner took of their kitchen and sent it into you and said, Hey, look how clean our kitchen is. Yeah, or, or you know, you have um, I don't know, Twitter the, file style. The, the the notebook is the process, and if there is no record of the process, then as far as as far as the public should be concerned, uh, what you have is people promoting an image that a process has taken place um, when that is the expectation in all of history of science. 
And so to, to put that forth and not have that record of the process, that, that should be, you know, and, 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 may, and maybe it's a matter of talking through this linguistically until we can state it in, in, in a way that, um, that helps people understand it as best as possible. But it, it, it feels like some sort of a sales fraud job, right? It's not the same form of fraud that we're used to, and that's part of why it's clever. And I bet that this is something that has gone on within the pharmaceutical industry um, in the past, and I bet that it's it's a perfected model because nobody has ever needed to look this deep. And if you have the FDA going, oh, you know, look, this is all this is okay with us because they see a well typeset trial report. Uh, you know, a well typeset trial report is not a science notebook, right? Right. But there's the illusion that these things are similar, right. if not the same. They are not similar. They are not the same. Um, we're coming up on the end of our time here, and I don't want to keep you guys over. I have two more questions I want to ask. Um, the first is, um, it's interesting as we go through uh, a presentation like yours, or we hear uh, for the first time names like Ventavia and Icon, and for some, even BioNTech. Um because we do think of this as the Pfizer vaccine. Some people add the BioNTech at this point, but it occurs to me the, and, and this speaks to, we were, I asked about Almac and where they are in the system and what's their role in the whole thing. Um, there are so many different organizations, um, both, you know, corporations, uh, uh, government agencies, uh, various types involved in this entire process, not to mention the, principal investigators at each of the sites. And then you could go all the way down to their teams and lab assist, whatever. But even just looking at the top level of just like, I'm wondering if anybody has ever put together sort of a rough org chart just to be able to visualize. And we're talking about this clinical trial as a whole. This is what it looks like. This is this map of the players involved. Um, have you guys seen anything like that? Or do you otherwise have any any way to frame or point people towards uh, some some way to be able to articulate and understand the scope of the organizations because perhaps there are groups uh, that could look into a given organization so you can understand more a trial yeah, a blueprint. blueprint i don't know if anyone's done that it's pierre he's he loves he loves diagrams like that Indeed, I love diagram, but I haven't made this one so far. Okay. So it will be one of the two things to be done uh, quickly. Indeed, another thing I have in mind is that we should do a map of uh, frauds uh, observed in this trial, meaning that uh, on each site it's not the same way to cheat, and uh, it may be amusing to to have a visualization of this uh, South African site at uh, mm -hmm. nine. Uh, placebo cases, but at three subjects disappeared and six, six subjects invalidated from efficacy, for example. Interesting. I don't That's know. Nice I, idea. I'm looking for ideas to on how to, to get people interested and uh, how to get the argument simple enough. For right. That's, that's the problem is making, keeping it, keeping it simple. Yep. Okay. Well, my, my last question is, um, what what do people have wrong? And maybe this is a horrible question to end with because this could, I'm sure, go on for a long time. But what 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 do people believe that is incorrect, or what is something that is like a pervasive misunderstanding in our circles in general about 
the trial or about what you've just gone through? What's something people believe that isn't true? So one that I that that comes up again and again, and and I I, I believe that they've actually corrected it, but but um, uh, Daily Clout and Naomi Wolf's organization for a very long time, Naomi Wolf was quoting um, miscarriage figures, and at some point she was saying that these were people in the clinical trial that there that there were these pregnant women in the clinical trial and high rate of them had miscarriages. But she, there was a confusion there because they were taking a document that was based on um, post-marketing adverse event reports. Post-marketing means after they started deploying the vaccine um, to millions of people, they were getting, there were adverse event reports and, and Pfizer was required, reg, by, had a regulatory requirement to gather data from a variety of sources, including VARES, including vigilance, including those kinds of things, including people calling up Pfizer and reporting problems with the vaccine and taking there and then reporting to the FDA about what they were finding. And so the numbers of and pregnant women were not in the trial um, they were from this data set, which has all of the different biases and drawbacks of all of the spontaneous reporting data systems. And so you can't calculate a miscarriage rate because you can't calculate a denominator. Even if you know how many doses were distributed, you don't know how many were taken, you don't know how many were taken by pregnant women, you don't know at what week the women were pregnant, you know, what week of pregnancy the women were in. You don't know the underreporting rate, and so you don't actually know the number of miscarriages that actually occurred, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, may, it stands to reason that if a woman is pregnant and she takes a vaccine, she's, it's more likely to be reported as an adverse event if she had a miscarriage. Now, uh, there many of, some of the uh, adverse event reports for pregnant women is just, uh, we gave this to a pregnant woman. That's an adverse event. Nothing bad has to happen in order for them to report that. So, so they, you know, you, you get these high rates of like 82% of the pregnant women in the trial uh, had a miscarriage. That's just wrong. And, you know, it's, it's like, it's so wrong at so many levels and you see it repeated again and again and again. And even though I believe in the, 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 the book that they published, the report on that, I, I, I believe they got it right in that final report. Thank but there, it, it was repeated so often prior to that wrongly that that's what's that's what's stuck in people's head now i see that repeated and it, it makes my blood boil you know um so daily clout had uh they they have like a bunch of different reports um that they were releasing throughout their study of the trial and then they put a bunch of them together and published it um you can get it on Amazon. I, I, I forget what it's called. You can go to the day. If you go to the daily cloud website, I'm sure there's an advertisement for it. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's this guy. There you um, go. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Daily cloud and war room. Um, anyway, very interesting. This is another uh, interesting thing we could dive into, but um, what, what about you, Pierre? Do you concur or is there something else that you've, you've identified for yourself? I concur on the, the, the most regular error that I notice around me is that people are systematically telling me that uh, the real world data has proven since the trial that uh, the vaccine is safe or effective and uh, there is nothing more wrong uh, so far. We haven't seen a single satisfying study with data 
which allows us to conclude that uh, aside for trusting the FDA, and I believe we have covered why right. we should have questions. Right. Like, who cares about the Pfizer results? We know from you know from all these other studies after it was released that it's safe and effective. Well, yeah, I've got a uh, dead friend who may beg to differ. <laughs> we, um, that's well. Yeah. Uh, on that note, um, going off on a high note, again, you guys um, have have done tremendous work and it's ongoing work. I'm always very pleased when I get the new, uh, from both of you guys, the new Substack emails into my inbox. And um, you do make it, uh, uh, despite the inherent challenges in communicating this information, you do make it easy to understand. You do add context, you do add um, links and references to other things if people do need more context or need a recap. Um, you link to each other's work. You link to other people's work. So um, so thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you for the ongoing effort. And I highly encourage, again, everybody to follow both uh, both Substacks, which I'm going to pull up one by one. Um, on our way out, uh, uh, Pierre, where can people find you? What are your social media handles? Where do you want uh, to direct people to find more of your work? On Twitter, I'm on my current six, six account on Cancel Mouse and uh, on uh, Substack, I'm open VAT. Did you, did you say your screen. sixth Twitter account? Yeah. You've uh, had to go open. through six. Yeah, you, you, I was banned for ban evasion. Since, since I was anonymous, you don't need to justify your ban, you know. So publishing open data and code is uh, dangerous nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Pierre is it Pierre is at cancelled mouse on Twitter. In okay, case somebody anybody didn't catch that. Oh, oh that's you, Pierre. Okay. Yeah. That's me. <laughs> I, I we we've been communicating recently and I was enjoying our communication, but uh, I, I hadn't connected the two of you yet. <laughs> it's not easy to keep track. <laughs> but and, no, and they Pierre, don't ban me anymore. Pierre, you're also one of the only people who engage us on I think either gab or getter is where you will uh, retweet our, or re-gab our stuff. Um, so thank I stopped you. to I stopped to use getter because I was shadow banned constantly since I published an analysis of uh, US census data, which is deeply flawed. Shadow banned uh, from getter. Yeah. Okay. Well, this may have something to do with uh, rounding the news episode that I'm doing this Friday. So there's a fun little cliffhanger teaser for everybody. Um, very interesting, Pierre. I'm sorry to hear that. No um, worries. Okay. Well, interesting detail. You you can see in code who the shadow ban if uh, if you're interesting. Hmm. Okay. Well, very interesting indeed. Um. Now, uh, uh, how about you, Josh? Where would you like to direct people to in addition to your fantastic Substack? Thank you. Um, I'm at Josh G99 uh, on Twitter. That would be the other way. Um, retweeting lots of stuff, but. Fantastic. Um, okay, well now I'll just do our, our plug here. I highly recommend um, if if you haven't been following us over here on uh, locals, runningtheearth.locals.com, we've been having um, uh, excellent community discussion um, in the locals chat as we always do. And if you're not yet a member, highly recommend becoming so in order to keep track of everything we're doing in this nice, easy, friendly, community-based uh, format. And if you want to support Running the Earth financially, you can do so um, uh, for as little as five bucks a month. And you get access to super sweet, super uh, exclusive weekly live streams where we talk about stuff that um, is we're not quite ready to put out into the main public sphere, but within a smaller internal community brain trust, you might say, 
Um, we always have fantastic discussions. So roundingtheearth.locals.com. And um, yeah, that's that's our plug there. Um, uh, Matthew, any final words before we uh, kick ourselves out of this internet video? Yeah, stream yeah I'm just going to say it again. Life? No notebook, no blueprint, no science. You know, as far as far as your trust, at least in, in whether or not science has taken place, no, no notebook, no blueprint, no science. Uh, it's not communicated as far as we know, it's a black box. And that's not acceptable for the largest uh, experiment in human history. That may be acceptable for, um, you know, uh, learning how to, you know, bake a new cupcake. But it's, you know, uh, not, nothing on this this grand scale. It's ridiculous. Um, and thanks to to Josh and Pierre and all the people who have done detail work to uh, to help make that plain because you have to shine a lot. You know, it's so big that you have to shine the light in a lot of places to get to the point where you can make that statement. No, no book, no blueprint, no science. Thank thanks you, you uh, for giving us a plat platform to share our work. And you're welcome back absolutely anytime. I know there's going to be further updates probably sooner than later. And um, we had this one scheduled like a month ago. So uh, I'm sure uh, we'll be able to get you back on even sooner than a month from now, if so required. So thank you again. And uh, thank you to everybody who tuned in today. Um, yet another fantastic show. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing everybody. Uh, well, tomorrow for our weekly locals exclusive. And then I'll be back on Friday for as we've teased here. Something, uh, a continuation of last week's show. And it is interesting that this whole getter discussion has come up because uh, it is directly related to what I'm going to be talking about. So there's your little cliffhanger. We'll see you guys again very soon. Mm -hmm.